What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD in Kasilof and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in. This is Madness Radio, and I'm your host, Will Hall. Today, our topic is uh, school bullying, and we are speaking with Dawn Mencken, who is a faculty at the Process Work Institute of Portland. Dawn is a psychotherapist who works with um, families and children and individuals, and she is a PhD and author of the book Speak Out, talking about love, sex, and eternity. Uh, Dawn is also a mother and uh, does a lot of work around conflict and work with multicultural groups. So thank you very much for joining us today on Madness Radio, Don Menken. Thank you, Will, for having me. I'm excited to be talking to your audience. I'm really interested in this topic of, of bullying because I think it just affects so many people. I mean, I, growing up myself, um, you know, I was, I was picked on. There was a lot of homophobia in um, elementary school and, and high school. A lot of kids I saw um, getting beat up. There was also also racial tension, and I know that bullying um, is an issue that, um, you know, affects people deeply and can affect them in a lasting way for their whole life, and you've really sort of developed an approach and a technique of working with bullying, and maybe you can just tell us about, you know, what is bullying and um, what sort of impact does it have on the society and why it's important for us to try try and address it. I love that you come with your own personal experience, which is, I think, how all of us come to this theme, because everyone is touched by bullying, I think, at some point in their lives. So when you ask what bullying is, I'd say a very basic definition is the kind of continual teasing, hitting, intimidation, power used over one person without the other really being able to defend themselves. I mean, it affects both victims and bullies. Um, And it affects our culture. It affects victims in, obviously, loss of esteem and confidence, depression, and in the most extreme cases, suicide. But it also can affect victims, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, at some point during our talk today. In terms of that, it can be a challenge, a real turning point in life, that some people use the experiences of oppression or where they've been really hurt to really make something amazing out of it. Use that in their own personal growth to grow in an extraordinary way, or to use it with the outer world. So it also affects people who are victims in terms of it being an opportunity. And it affects bullies also. Bullies marginalize difference in themselves. It hurts their feeling life. And I think it also gives a false sense of power. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. And I think it, a lot of us will resonate with that, that as, as victims of bullying, it, it can also be a turning point. It can be a place that we learn some things from. And we'll be talking about that a little bit more um, later, especially when we talk about the process work uh, approach to this issue. Um, Dawn, how does, how does bullying how how extensive is it in society? How common is it? And how does it also fit into these broader social problems um, around, say, racism and sexism and, and homophobia and the ways in which um, people are stratified and there's inequality and oppression in society? Let's. 
I want to go really basic first, which is before we go to the whole world scene and the different isms, which obviously people are bullied for. Um, but I want to make the basic premise that bullying exists. And when you ask about a process work approach, I want to emphasize that in some ways we are all bullied and, in some, and we bully and that we share both of those roles inside of each of us. Like, for example, I have a son in second grade, and he came home the first day of school this year, and he said to me, the first thing he said was, Mama, he says, everyone is a bully. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, everyone is a bully, and guess what? I said, so are you. And he looked at me oddly, and I said, and so am I. And we both giggled, and I said, yes, I'm a bully when I tend to press my viewpoint sometimes on others. And you can bully me around, too, when you're rather forceful and you don't really watch my feedback. And then we sort of talked about how everyone in some way can be a bully and a victim. So I want to somehow, I want to neutralize that. So I want to say, yes, bullying is a serious issue with schools and kids, and it's also a very common experience when we marginalize um, different parts of ourselves and we unconsciously press forward and force ourselves on other people. So I, I just want to make that a more of a neutral ground where we come from. You asked about how that connects with, with school issues and, and isms, racism, homophobia. And you touch on one of the most, the central, one of the more central concepts around bullying, which is that many people bully people who are different. And uh, so if you're, if you're in a school where there are more white people, white kids there, yes, people of color will tend to get more bullied. Uh, gay people are marginalized all over, so yes, those folks get more bullied. But deeper also than the isms themselves are um, just is just our own relationship to difference. We bully those who are different, and we bully ourselves when we're different. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that, because I think it might be hard for some of us who've been victims of bully of bullying to say, oh, I'm a bully too, when we didn't actually beat someone up or threaten them or anything as, as extreme as that. Well, one thing to think about is that many kids who bully, they marginalize part of themselves that are different or unusual. So much of school life or growing up is sort of about, you know, we're all the same and we have to get with the program and we sort of have to be like everybody else. And that's why kids who are more obviously different get bullied. However, um, having a friendly relationship to difference in ourselves, inside, for example, if I feel like I shouldn't be as colorful a person as I am, I shouldn't be as exuberant or passionate as a child, I shouldn't develop this particular interest because it's not the interest of the larger culture that I'm around, or I shouldn't be as feeling or sensitive as I am because I should be tough like all the other kids around me, that part of myself is bullied. I run right over it. I give it no air. I give it no room for expression. 
So that's an inner issue as well as, yes, the outer issue then comes on top of that. But if we're able to nurture difference inside of us, then there is less tendency to bully outside. You mentioned your son, Don. Is that how you got interested in this issue? How is it that you came to work with uh, bullying? So I think my own personal story probably is at the root um, of why bullying. Obviously, my son is incredibly crucial to me, but my own story is that I grew up in a town in New York, a pretty small town, about an hour north of New York City, which was predominantly, I'd say, like 99% Italian Catholic. And I have a Jewish background. I repeatedly, particularly around the ages of 10 or 11, I think, people began, kids began to wake up around differences and stuff. And I lost all my friends, and I had all of my, my, you know, if I had a paper up on the wall or a piece of artwork, it would be defaced. It would say, like, dirty Jew, or uh, kids would throw stones at me after school. Like, painful stuff, you know, that a lot of kids go through. And uh, and a turning point for me, a really big turning point, was when I, I beat up the gang leader. I was probably about 13, 14 years old, and I had a group of about 14 kids, ready girls, ready to beat me up one day after school. So I had a lot of fights, and I beat up the gang leader, and that was really my salvation, is being able to stand up for myself. So... I have a history around being marginalized and fighting for the underdog in many ways, and I've had my own personal experiences, absolutely. So that, I think, in a deeper way has somehow brought me to that issue. Now, you mentioned before these ideas of the relationship of the inner to the outer and the idea that we're all bullies and that we actually also bully ourselves. Was that important? to you in sort of coming to terms with these experiences that you had and tell us more about that because I know it's really central to the process work approach and what process work brings to this issue of bullying that maybe is different than a lot of other approaches. That's right. Um, At some point, um, learning about the energy of the bully could be important. And what we mean by that is when I work with kids, for example, at some point I'll ask, I'll ask the child to show me what the bully was like and they'll play the bully out. Now, I don't want them to have the behavior of the bully in terms of being cruel or, um, or mean, but I, there is an energy in the bully that is really crucial. That could be a confidence Um, That could be the ability to take up space. It could be the ability to stand up for oneself. It's an energetic piece. And I know in my own story, my ability to, to meet the bully and not just be pushed over, but to actually feel my strength and to feel my physical strength. And I'm not here advocating physical strength because I know there's a lot of controversy around that. But I do think there are moments when one has to fight. Otherwise, you would be too severely hurt. I I had to fight in in a couple of instances, and I'm glad I was able to. Um, But there's something in the energy that one must learn to pick up. And it's interesting, Will, because this past fall, uh, I did a program with a colleague of mine with a fourth and fifth grade girls around particularly uh, the culture of meanness 
within within girls, which is a little bit different than boys. And um, when we asked the girls, we were doing an exercise with them around bullying, and we were creating skits. And when we asked the girls to play the role of the bully or the boys, boys were often in their skits as bullies, they loved it. It was the most incredible thing. They would giggle, and they got it all excited, and suddenly they loved being able to speak out directly. They loved being able to take up space, like the boys and the bullies. They had a very different way of moving than the girls did. If we, if we weren't on the radio, let me see how I can describe this to you so you could see it. Like normally the girls would stand more contained, their physical postures, their arms and their limbs. But when they played the boys, suddenly they, their legs would move more apart. They would gesticulate more. They would like throw their chests out and like walk in a sort of more tough, assertive way, if you could sort of see that. And the same thing happened when they played the bullies. Now, obviously, these girls, you don't want to become that cruel thing. But energetically, there was something in the ability to be able to take up space, to say what you want, and to have that freedom that was so crucial. And this is actually one of the central components of girl bullying. There's, a, there's an author who, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, I can't think of it now, Rachel someone. Anyway, she writes a book and has an interesting premise that a lot of the uh, more covert forms of uh, female aggression with our girls um, specifically has to do with girls not being taught enough how to have direct conflict and not being supported enough that we're still socialized uh, to be nice and to be nurturing. So we don't have direct conflict, but instead we're sort of we go around the back and you get this whole relational covert kind of aggression where girls have these like long fights with each other where they give each other silent treatment and terrible things, notes and rumors. But I'm bringing this in because when the girls themselves play the bully or play the, the boy, it's, not, it's a more direct style of communication. And that's what they're looking for. And that's a piece where process work would take a different approach in terms of finding the energy of what disturbs you, in this case the bully, and seeing what you can take from it that would be of use to you. So turning for the girls, turning the experience of bullying into something that maybe is, is a learning experience for them that helps them to develop qualities that they may need that they haven't been able to access because of the way they've been brought up. Or It also suggests that there are real differences among um, genders around bullying, and I imagine there are different differences as well, as well in different cultures around how bullying plays out. Boys are taught more to have direct conflict. Um, but then also, uh, particularly in African-American culture, that difference isn't as stark because girls are taught and supported there to have more direct conflict. And if you're coming more from a marginalized group and you're against a strong, uh, minor uh, a strong majority group, you might also be pressed um, into having more direct conflict because it's a, if you can, because it's, it's, a, it's basically your survival. And, but there are cultural differences, yes. Some cultures, particularly black culture, speaks out more. Latina culture also has a little more strength to it and more extroverted expression. These are generalizations, of, co of course, but there is some truth to that.
What were some of the things that the boys um, were discovering and learning in their work around bullying? One of the reasons why I'm happy to have a son is because, you know, I had the benefit of being part of the women's movement in my coming of age years. And I still feel that there's a men's movement that's yet to come. So having a son, I feel like I'm supporting and waving my flag for the men's movement. And part of that movement, in my view, is teaching our boys and supporting our boys to have an inner life and to have a feeling life. Many boys who get bullied are particularly, they're really sensitive and dreamy and feeling and they don't get enough support for that. And these are often the children who get bullied. And it also um, happens around homophobia. Can you tell us about that and your, and your work around um, bullying and being gay in, in the school system? People are called, you know, homophobic slurs before even children even maybe know what, you know, being gay is all about. And there's not even any sexuality um, that's being displayed at some of these young ages, but people, you know, kids call each other homo or queer or whatever, and they don't even know necessarily what it is. Um, but oftentimes what they are seeing, like with the case of boys or girls, is they don't fit into particular uh, gender, um, gender labels. So in the case of boys who are particularly sensitive or dreamy or they don't like sports, those are usually the kids who get it more around homophobia. Do you think that um, the bullying that kids um, inflict on other kids may also be related to their own family experiences? I mean, is there something that happens where children get bullied in families and they turn around and then bully other kids? Why kids bully is crucial. And when I do, um, when I work with bullying, one of the things that's really important to me is that we don't bully the bully that we don't put the kid who is the bully down because then he becomes more isolated or she becomes more isolated and out of that isolation bullies further. But many kids who bully actually do not feel powerful because they've been hurt or downed in other places. And these kids then find power in bullying. So, I mean, absolutely, kids who are bu they're bullied by parents, um, they're bullied by siblings, absolutely. That's a very profound realization, what you just said, that people who bully um, themselves feel powerless. Do you think that it relates to questions of oppression in general in society? I think so, and then I think it also has to do with how we parent, actually. Um, I mean, all of us are doing the best we can in terms of parenting, and yet there's so much to learn. And... Uh, we don't always think enough as parents that if a child is always being pressed and forced to go along with our direction as a parent, if our voices are always harsh and we demand obedience, that's a kind of a bullying. And we might not think it at the time, but it creates a child um, who's fearful and who doesn't feel powerful, which brings me will to something that I think is really, really important, which is um, what parents can do um, to help kids around the issue, and, uh, and it has to do around also the creating a bully, is one thing that parents need to think about is, can we encourage kids to disagree with us as parents? 
if we can, if, a, if your child cannot disagree with you, you cannot expect your child to stand up for himself or herself relative to a bully. Say more about that. It sort of comes to the question of how you actually work with people to help uh, change and growth take place. So how, how would you support parents to raise children who can stand up for themselves to the, to the parents? I'm always looking for my son's opinions. We might not go along always with his opinions. doesn't mean I, ha- I have to do what he wants me to do. But if I say something, um, I want to hear what he thinks too. And I want to talk to him about it. And he needs to be free also to express to me his difference. And that is so, so crucial. We teach children then how to interact with power and how to interact with peer groups. And the parental relationship is the first power relationship that a child has. I mean, small things, for example. Um, um, so on this particular day with my son, just as an example, we were, he was about five, and we were walking in our neighborhood. And we've had this agreement that when he runs ahead, he has to stop at the curb. And he would stop at the curb, and we would cross the street together. And for some reason, on this particular day, he got ahead and he crossed the street. And I was pretty upset. And I ran ahead and I said, hey, Theo, you crossed the street without waiting for me. That's scary for me. It's it's dangerous. And he sort of, badly, and he got quiet. And But now here, and he said he was sorry, but now as a parent, I want to hear why he did what he did. I want to hear his viewpoint, Will. So I said to him, well, tell me now. Why did you do it? Why did you do it? And he said, well, he said, Mama, I think I can do that street by myself. I looked this way and this way, and I didn't see any cars, and I felt it was safe. Now, 21st Street, that's a busy street. I won't cross that one alone. But I think I'm old enough now to cross these other streets. So I thought, wow, okay. I realized my boy is growing up. He convinced me. He said his viewpoint, and he actually made a lot of sense to me. I listened to him, and I thought, yeah, okay, you can cross these streets. And then we began to talk about what streets you can cross and which streets you can't cross. And then I also said to him, I said, well, if you're going to make a change like that in the future, though, let me know first before you just do it. And he agreed. But that was a really good conversation, you see. And so as a parent, my job is to bring out his viewpoint, even though it was different than me. Because sometimes as parents, we bring out our viewpoint so strongly, we don't even realize that we're silencing our children. And he had a good argument there. That's such a great that's such a great example and a really a really nice story for illustrating a lot of what you're you're saying. And that you can be changed. I just want to add in there, Will, that as a parent, I think it's profound that uh, a five year old's argument can change you. And that as parents we, we allow that. We allow our children to impact us. We don't just stand in our power spot, but we allow ourselves to be changed and we listen to our viewpoint their viewpoints. And that is so important because it gives them the confidence, you see, to go outside of their home environment where they can stand up for differences, whether that be at school or in the world. They can question things that they don't necessarily agree with. They don't just go along with power. And that is so important around what parents can do in their parenting style to help kids deal with bullying. 
Don, you mentioned uh, the role playing that you do with uh, with children to help them. Is that when you work with with children in the schools, for example, or maybe you work um, individually with them? Is that an example of the kind of, of technique or tool that you use? Tell us more about how you work with individual individual kids, both kids who are victims of bullies and also kids who have um, been bullying themselves. Well, you bring up role playing, which is just a terrific intervention for kids. It's good for everybody, but I find kids particularly love it because they get to they get to try out new patterns. Role play teaches us; it models new possibilities for us, and it also connects us with being the so-called baddie or the other. And we get to get into their shoes, and we get to feel what it is they might want or need, or we get to pick up the energy within the other person and somehow use it. And sometimes kids won't want to role play, but they'll, they want you to do it. And they'll like, they like watching it, and then they direct you. And they'll pick it up on their own. Um, we had a thing in our family this week, and we, we incorporated role playing and other things. But uh, my son came home, so he's, he's seven and a half now. And he came home from school six the other day. It was sort of odd. He had just gotten dropped off. My partner dropped him off at school. And then um, five minutes later, I got a call from the secretary, and she said, well, come pick up Theo. He's suddenly sick. It was really odd. So I went and I picked him up from school. And he said he didn't have any fever, no physical body symptoms. And I asked him, to tell me what it was his body was feeling. And he said, well, I feel that my feet are going in a different direction than my body. And then he came home, and he went to his bookshelf, and he took out a bunch of books. I don't know if you know the, the author, a great uh, children's book writer, a guy by the name of Todd Parr, who writes a book, uh, It's Okay to Be Different, and he also writes great illustrator. He writes a book called The Family Book. And my son, he started reading all these books. And he says, you know, Mom, he said, Todd Parr is a very good author because he writes about families like ours. So in our family, we have a two-mom family. And he said, he writes about our families. And I like reading about that. And uh, then out comes the story that when he was in school the day before, Apparently, uh, a kid was teasing him about his two-mom family in the playground, and it hurt his feelings, and there were a lot of other kids around, and he said he felt really embarrassed, and he didn't know what to say. And um, and he, he didn't realize that he forgot to tell me about it. It happened on uh, Friday afternoon, so this was Monday morning. And uh, Friday afternoon when I picked him up, his, his head was in another space. He had a play date with another kid, and he was, it was a different mood. And then there was the weekend. He forgot about it. And he somatically picked it up when he went back to school Monday morning. So we worked with possibilities of what he could do. And we role-played different situations together, and we talked about you know, how he might um, also talk to friends of his who were bystanders bystanders. And then the next day he went back to school Tuesday and he came home, Will, and, he, and I didn't know if he was going to do anything at all, actually. He came home and he said, Mama, I went up to that boy who teased me in the playground. I went up to him privately during recess. And I said to him, 
I said, you know, on Friday, you teased me about my family, and it really hurt my heart, and I think you should apologize to me. And the kid said, I'm sorry, and apologized. And then my son went off, and he was, he was happy. And he came home telling that story very proudly. And I was incredibly proud for him. So in those role plays that we did at home, you see, he picked something up. And I had no idea he was going to uh, implement those things. I didn't know what he would do with that information. And I was particularly um, impressed by the way he pulled that boy aside privately, because that is the way to deal with a lot of bullies and also to bystanders, to connect with people privately and tell them how much it hurts you and how you need their support and help. So that was a huge thing. So we're just right on the topic <laughs> in our household that's been happening for us this week. I just wanted to share that. And then we did, another, we did a systemic change, which I also want to encourage uh, parents to do. I connected with the, the teachers in the second grade class. And I said, you know, we have to do something more institutionally. And they were pretty open to that. And Theo himself, my son, he decided he's going to bring those books to school by Todd Parr, and he's going to read them to the class. And he went in, and he read them to the class. And the teacher was fantastic. She created a whole bunch of curriculum from it. And they did a bunch of skits. And also particularly, and I was coaching her from the background of possibilities, what she could do. And particularly, one thing they did was to help people who are standing by to speak up. That's a little personal story, just to tell you how I'm also very much occupied that my home life and how anyone who has children, you, you just are. Good for Theo, and good for you for supporting him. It sounds like it's having real effects um, beyond just his experience and your experience, but also changing our, our schools and that's really that's really great to hear if you're just tuning in this is madness radio and we're speaking with dawn mankin who is faculty at the process work institute of portland oregon she's phd author of speak out talking about love sex and eternity she is a psychotherapist with um, families and parenting and children uh, a mother and we are speaking today about the problem of bullying and you brought up something that I think is important, that, that sometimes we may not even know that kids are being bullied. What are some of the signs? I mean, I don't even think my son knew it when he was at school feeling ill, that that was the connection. So that's right. Things show up somatically. And a lot of the, the symptoms that are out there, I mean, just true. Parents need to look for, you know, things like depression, change in moods, obviously change in grades and interests. Um, not wanting to go to school. Um, these are all big indicators. And yes, if you have the opportunity and skills to work with somatic material, that is really important. And uh, you, you mentioned process work's abilities here. Well, yes, process work does work deeply with body symptoms and somatic experience. And within that, um, uh, you find the stories that have been marginalized, and you also find solutions within the body as well. Dawn, I think one of the things that our culture teaches us is you know, that to stand up to a bully, you have to fight back. It's about going back to the playground and throwing a punch at the person who is taunting you or standing up and wrestling. And I think sometimes that can be 
what's needed. But what would process work say about that as a um, as a way of addressing the issue? I think it's one possible issue if that goes along with the individual. Obviously, when you're talking about throwing punches, you have to bring in the school system. The school system will probably say you can't throw punches, right? So they become part of the scene that you're working with. Can you find another way? Um, oftentimes, what uh, I think that has to happen a lot with bullying and that what I do in supporting children is to help children um, stand up for sensitivity. For example, kids are often, as I said, they're bullied for so-called perceived weakness, like feelings or something. And I teach kids to, to stand up and say, that's right, I'm sensitive. I think that's a good thing. How come you're not? Kids rarely stand up for the sensitive feeling. And the punch just shows physical prowess. And obviously, if you're a smaller person, you're going to get creamed. Um, but can you use your inner strength to stand up for your feeling life or to be able to say, um, let's say you're a gay teen, to be able to say, yeah, I do like people of my same gender. That's a great thing. Why would you be so against it? Why have, have, have you been hurt in some way? And that's also something I, that I, uh, I help kids to do in schools is uh, to find out why the bully is bullying. Some kids bully because they're jealous. For example, some kids are bullied for their intelligence, for example. Say, hey, that's right, I am a really smart kid. Do you need help with something? Maybe I could support you. Some kids bully because they're not heard. Some kids bully because they, um, they want friends. Can you see the subtext in back of the bully and address that? So I teach kids um, to be smart. And I do this even as second graders. I'm doing a program with second graders. And I'm very much interested in tapping their intelligence and support them to also think deeply about why someone behaves how they do. What is the subtext in the background? And to address that. To say something like, hey, you must be really being heard at home. What's going on with you? Or, uh, oh, and this is another uh, set of interventions, Will, just thinking off the top of my head, is I want to I tap kids' intelligence because they have ideas that I won't have. For example, we were doing a role play with this one boy I was working with, he was uh, eight, nine years old around a bully situation, and we were acting it out. And this little boy looked at it. He looked at the so-called bully, and he said, you know what, Don? I said, what? He says, that kid just needs a hug. <laughs> nice. I wouldn't have thought of that, but I think he was absolutely right. And that was the intervention. Don, what about situations where... Um the bullying is so bad or say it's really violent where some kind of really strong punishment or intervention is needed to just stop it from happening, just interrupt it. I mean, you're saying it. Some things just have to be stopped and interrupted. Uh, schools have to step up. Um, some kids, I want to also say this, this is really important. Some kids need to change schools. Absolutely. You don't have to be a hero. 
go to a school, change the school, go to a place that will support more of who you are. And maybe sometimes punishing the kid who's the bully might be a helpful thing to do if things have gotten to that point. Well, what do you mean by punishing? Well, I mean, I, I can't imagine, but suspension from school or, um, you know, having to stay later or um, something like that. I guess my dream about that would be that punishment usually leads to isolation. And there's a lot of research now being done with isolation and bullies, um, leading also to teen violence. I'm more interested in, yes, taking the bully out of the scene in those extreme cases, but that, that kid needs help. So just a punishment that, uh, that isolates and says, no, I personally don't think is sufficient. I want to find out why the kid is doing what he is doing. And maybe if you just punish the bully, that might lead to more problems later on because they're not getting their needs addressed and then society pays an even greater uh, cost than if it had helped the person right at the beginning. Yeah, because then the bully also feels bullied by the system. The system ends up inadvertently bullying the bully by saying, you are now the bad kid and we're going to lock you up and put you here and you think about what you've done. Now, you know, kids who are really being that nasty have, you know, they have stuff to work on. They need help. And I think it relates to um, the criminal justice system in general. Do you have any thoughts about how the insights that you've gained from working with children and families maybe applies to violence as a whole in society and the way in which we treat crimes and violence and safety and, and uh, criminal justice? I definitely think if we're able to catch a lot of these things with children, um, that will alleviate the burden on our criminal justice system. Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. But it also has to do, um, you know, in social services and schools, we can't do everything. A lot lies on the responsibility of parents. How do we parent our kids? Just as important. And what kinds of supports do you think that parents need? Because I, I imagine there are parents who are maybe feeling, you know, themselves overwhelmed if they have a child who's a bully and maybe they don't feel like they have personally have the resources to maybe do what they need to do or maybe they don't know or maybe they, would, they were taught a certain way and they need to, to learn a different way of approaching the problem. Too often I think parents feel embarrassed by their kids who are bullies, which I can appreciate and they condemn it, but we need to help the child more who's bullying. And I would encourage parents with little resources for sure to connect with school systems and school counselors because, I mean, every school these days is aware of bullying and trying to do something in, in whatever way they can. Um, obviously, we have, you know, more to go here, but um, that is a free resource. So definitely talk to school counselors, create a support group within your school system. Um, try to understand your child. Question your child. Ask why he or she does what they do. How can you support them? And question yourself. You know, some basic things that I said that parents can do, Will, is really encourage kids to have their own view, even relative to you. You might not agree with it, but encourage them to disagree. Another thing to do is support their differences. 
their differences inside of them and also support di difference and diversity outside of them. That also helps a child not to bully because you see, you see the so-called different person on the outside. You don't see them as so different than you, that it's someone you're going to pick on. But if you embrace the difference inside of yourself, you're less likely to hurt others who are different. Another thing that parents can do is, um, is to stand up, help kids to stand up for feelings and for sensitivity. And that's something that, as parents, we have to do better also. We don't always do that very well. So we have to also model the things. We have to walk the talk, too. Uh, Dawn, do you find that people who grow up, who were themselves bullied as children, they often have a lot of leftover effects from that? And you know, how do you go about helping someone who is an adult who had a bullying experience and, and really maybe needs to, to get some help or get some work to help them resolve some of that because of the way that it, it is still affecting their lives as adults? Yeah, what you're saying is just really true. And um, those stories from our youth are incredibly powerful. And often, you know, in a therapeutic context, it's really helpful to go back into that story again and to have the reactions that you couldn't have when you were a child. That's one piece. What can say a little bit more about that? What do you mean have the reactions that you couldn't have as a child? Here you were, you were absolutely humiliated and you just stood there as kids were picking on you. And you couldn't say, you couldn't express the hurt, you couldn't express the anger that you felt then. That's often the case. So going back and having that interaction, role playing that interaction, is incredibly helpful. Another piece, which is much more complex and subtle, but very, very powerful, is to find out where is the living psychic reality of the bully now? Where is the adult person unconsciously bullying themselves? For example, um, in social issues, this is, this is the whole bit about internalized racism, internalized sexism, internalized homophobia that many of us have been hurt by. Or um, Where have we internalized this bullying social voice that puts us down? And those things are very, very subtle and very powerful. So seeing that and then reacting to that inside of ourselves is really crucial or outside of the isms, where is the bully inside? For example, if we were put down for our sensitivity, where do we put our sensitivity down now as adults? Where do we demean ourselves? Where do we make our feeling life insignificant? And these are, these are the remnants of bullying. Other kinds of things, uh, are, uh, we always take up the role of the underdog and we might do it unconsciously and then unconsciously bully others in our righteousness. I mean, there's all kinds of different things, but those are a few ideas. Yeah, so the last one is a really valuable dynamic, I think, for social activists to take a look at, because I, I personally am, and I've been very wounded by bullying, and then also have different kinds of oppressions as an, as an adult, and then the way in which that haunts me, and I can just turn right around and just get right back into the bully role and the oppressor role myself so easily, and I've learned, you know, to have 
groups of friends that I can do my venting and do my expression and so that I'm not bringing that with me as a, because it becomes a liability sometimes to our social activist work when we're too driven by that sense of righteous revenge and anger and then we kind of can turn off our ability to appeal to a wide range of the people of the public as we're trying to get our our message across and it also can just be stressful and, and burn us out and undermine our ability to do the work that we need to do long term so i think it's what you're saying is really important about looking at how our own bullying experiences and how our own internalized oppression then kind of hang around as the sort of psychic energy residue in how we act in the world and how we behave in the world. Don, are you hopeful that the uh, culture is changing and we're becoming a lot more aware and sensitive? I mean, you mentioned that a lot of school systems are very um, concerned about bullying and have a lot of active involvement in trying to deal with it and prevent it. And I remember when I uh, grew up, uh, there wasn't really any talk at all that I, that I knew of um, in the school system. And so are you hopeful that the culture is changing and the work that you're doing and that the work that other people are doing um, is contributing to some real progress in society? Well, I feel that schools are dinosaurs. And they must also reflect our own dinosaur-like nature. We're slow to change. Um, but yes, changes are happening. I mean, surely when I went to school, um, I'm 50, so I, I went to grade school a while back. Um, there was no such thing like that. And there was the viewpoint that, oh, and, and this is still pretty relevant today, but it's definitely being questioned. But the viewpoint is like the old-fashioned viewpoint is this. Oh, bullying is just a part of childhood. All kids have to go through it. You have to develop your chops. And um, I think that view is changing. I think people have been hurt enough and want to make a change there and don't want their kids to be in this repeated cycle. And so, you know, most schools do have strong bullying policies. They're beginning policies, um, but they're policies. They often don't go deeply enough into the problem. So, yes, I think things are changing, but not as fast as my personal, you know, my personal passions would like. <laughs> Would you like to see more programs that do the kinds of work that, that you're doing, or you say the policies aren't quite enough for schools? What sorts of things would you like schools to be doing? Well, my vision is that the kinds of work that I'm doing, which are basically they're all, everything I do in the school has been volunteer. So that tells you a lot there. In other words, there's no financial value put on these things. My view, for example, of the subject called social studies which I think people still have, social studies is that it's a, we're not just, you know, learning about history, but we're learning we are the living history. And all the social issues are not just things of the past, but they're, they're alive in our classrooms, in our schools, in our world. And um, I would love to see uh, social studies reflect a more dynamic curriculum where conflict resolution tools, um, awareness of, of difference and diversity work, and what we call a world work or group process, I would like that to see an integral part of curriculum and not just something that someone comes in and graciously does voluntarily here and there. And what are some of the obstacles to making that vision a reality, do you think? 
Well, one is money. Schools are so poor. I mean, here in, in Portland, Oregon, you're talking to me. We have so little money that it's one of the reasons I do it voluntarily is I, I can't bear to ask for money. I just feel it takes away so much of the precious resources that are available. And the other thing um, is what do we value in an education? And that's a much larger issue. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I do not, I'm not a proponent of uh, learning for tests and uh, particular uh, academic standards. I think there's a, a lot of things to learn in life. And one of the central things that I think schools should be doing is instilling a love of learning. That's the most important thing. If you love learning, you can learn anything. And uh, so the red tape around bringing in curricula that doesn't just go along with uh, standardized tests and you know, is really challenging for schools. Dawn, we are just about out of time. Give us the contact information where people can uh, get in touch with you, and also um, tell us a little bit about your book. I'm I'm terrible at technology, Will. So I have a promise for myself that this year I will get a website together. So now that I'm saying it on the air, geez, I'm really I'm making a, a larger commitment. <laughs> I have to get that. But people can find me on the website through the Process Work Institute, and uh, I'm also available by email at dmenken. That's D M E N. K E N at I G C dot org O R G. And uh, I can also be reached at 503 287 3969. And my, my book is titled Speak Out Talking About Love, Sex, and Eternity. And it's a book of essays about my uh, personal journey. Um, it reflects on, uh, on what I would call living process work. Those people are, who are familiar with process work principles will see the influence of that paradigm in my life and uh, talks a lot about diversity issues and sexual identity and um, what we call world work. It's like a living world work, uh, which is a multicultural group work uh, developed by Process Work founder Dr. Arnold Mandel, um, which brings together a diversity of groups and voices where we work on the different issues of the day. Don Menken, thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. Will, thank you so much for your curiosity, and thanks also to your listeners and the good work that everyone's doing out there. You've been listening to an interview with Dawn Mencken. Dawn is a faculty member at the Process Work Institute of Portland. She is a PhD and author of the book Speak Out, talking about love, sex, and eternity. Um, she's a psychotherapist working with uh, children and parents and also works in the school system around uh, bullying and parenting issues. Dawn can be reached through the Process Work Institute website, which is, which is processwork.org. Thanks a lot for tuning in to Madness Radio. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. 
Madness Radio broadcasts every Tuesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD Kasilov and Anchorage, Alaska. Co-produced by peer-run mental health communities freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.